with your host, Stephanie Arnold. Welcome to the show, Dave Sharp. Thank you. Dave, would you mind introducing yourselves to our listeners? Yes. Well, I wouldn't mind. I am Managing Director of the Memphis office. My name is Dr. D.C. Sharp, but everybody calls me Dave uh, around the office, around the firm. So it would be weird if you didn't call me Dave. Well, I've called you Dave for a long time. I always like to start with an icebreaker question. And Dave, my question for you is, what is one hobby that you like to do outside of work? I play the drums. I actually, ah. I was actually a music major. And how I made that transition to economics, I don't know. But I'm glad I did. <laughs> but I still play. <laughs> you still play? That's awesome. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, let's get into it. I understand you're here to talk to us today about employment discrimination. Yes, I am. In particular, I'm going to talk about a type of employment discrimination case called disparate impact cases, which generally involve statistical analysis because we're looking at groups of people as opposed to an individual. Uh, Would you mind explaining what you mean by disparate? Oh, sure. So disparate just means that we're looking to see if there's a disparity. And by that, I mean, we're really looking to see if an employer's hiring policy, say, adversely impacts a group of people based on that group's traits. We're looking to see if there's disparity in, say, hiring or promotion or reductions in force or anything like that, just based on the group's traits. Would you elaborate on that a little more specifically, what traits, and are there some examples you could give us? Oh, sure. So we're usually looking to see if there's some disparity based on race or age or gender, or maybe in some cases, it's a combination of those. We're looking to see if any disparities we observe are statistically significant. And in employment discrimination cases, that determination is made by something called the Hazelwood Standard. Okay. <laughs> What's the Hazelwood Standard? <laughs> so the Hazelwood Standard is a court-determined benchmark used to detect a statistically significant difference between what is observed and what is expected. And that threshold is two or three standard deviations. What is normal in terms of standard deviations? So if it's anything less than two, then we think that whatever disparity we're observing could have potentially occurred by chance alone. So two or three standard deviations is a pretty high threshold for determining that there is some kind of bias in play. Uh, That's a little confusing. (laughs) Yeah. Let let me explain that a different way. So, So take an Take a specific example of gender discrimination. In a gender-neutral setting, and by that I mean an employer has no preference for one gender or the other when, let's say, hiring, Um, we would expect the gender mix of our new hires to mirror what we observe in the applicant pool. So say, just for example, half of the applicants are male, the other half is female, then we would expect something like 50% of the new hires to be male and the other 50% to be female. I mean, that's what we expect. But in the real world, we know that's not exactly going to happen. I mean, it's unlikely that the mix is precisely 50-50. So what if we look and we observe that who is actually hired is 55% male and 45% female? 
So we run our statistical tests to see if that outcome could have occurred by chance alone. If the disparity is big enough, that difference is big enough from what we expected, then we say it couldn't have occurred by chance alone. And that's what we're looking for. So what is considered big enough? So that question is answered by the Hazelwood standard, which says if it's two or three standard deviations or higher, then it's big enough to attribute that outcome to discrimination rather than just by random chance alone. And as an aside, I'll say that to me, this is a really neat meshing of the law and statistics because they sort of arrive at the same place from two different starting points. From the statistical side, two or three standard deviations lines up with the level of statistical significance that a lot of statisticians use, particularly in this kind of testing. It's a 5% or 1% probability of occurring by chance alone, which gives rise to our 95% or 99% confidence intervals. Meanwhile, from the legal side, it lines up nicely with an old legal principle called Blackstone's ratio that's been echoed by jurists for, I don't know, the last 250 years or so. Benjamin Franklin's famous variation on it goes, and I'm paraphrasing, it's, it's better that 100 guilty men go free than one innocent man be falsely imprisoned. So again, we arrive at something approximating that 99% confidence interval, but you know, from a different reference point. I see. Okay, so then the Hazelwood standard is a statistical test? Not exactly. It's a, it's a threshold we use when we conduct a statistical test. In these particular cases, the exact test we use is, is something called a Z-test of proportions. And the Z-test is a specific statistical test? It is. I mean, there are a couple of different variants we use commonly in these cases. One, if our reference population is, is actual applicants for the job, say, and we use one version, and another version is used if we're looking at any other reference population, such as you know, available labor force. Okay, but when you say reference population, what do you mean? Uh, so that's just our control group, our, our expected. So in the example before, it's just we observe that 50-50 mix of applicants, and so what we expect is something like that. When would you not use the applicants as your reference population? That's a good question. In general, we want to use applicants as the reference population, but there are a couple of issues that may arise that prevent us from doing that. First, it's amazing how often that data is not available. I mean, the the employer just hasn't maintained it or isn't providing it to us or whatever reason. But, and I can't, I can't underestimate the... Uh, the relevance of how often that happens. I think they usually just don't maintain it. And second, in, in certain circumstances, I, we think that the applicant pool itself may be tainted for whatever reason. So if either of those issues arise, then we have to look beyond the applicant pool and use something like qualified labor force. All right, Dave, I have never heard of the term tainted labor pool. Elaborate, please. So it could be the case that a uh, Let's say an employer has a reputation for being prejudiced against one group versus another. So, so qualified people from that group would never apply in the first place. So tainted just means that we observe that certain groups do not apply in proportions that we would expect given their representation in the qualified labor force. Or it could be the case that employer has known 
quotas, maybe on the basis of race. And um, I'll give you a real-world example of that. I worked on a case involving a school district in Arkansas, and the school district's policy was to pair the principal of one race with the vice principal of another race and vice versa. When a potential applicant considers a job, let's say for vice principal in that school district, if they're aware of the district's policy and they know the existing principal is the same race as them, then they're probably not going to bother applying in the first place. Okay. So what are some major takeaways that you have from that case? So that particular case settled, and I'm pretty sure as part of the settlement, they the school district did away with that policy. But in terms of what we're talking about, it's an example of where it would be unwise to use applicant flow for our statistical tests. You have a scenario like that, then all of the applicants are going to be of one race, and it's no wonder someone from that race is hired for the job. It has nothing to do with whether or not someone of another race was qualified for the job or not. So, Dave, what are some of your big, the biggest takeaway you took from this case, and what if, if people have questions uh, about it, how can they find you to have a follow-up chat? I think the biggest takeaway is that we want to use applicant flow, but there are definitely times when it's inappropriate to use. Uh, This is a classic real-world example of one of those times. And if people want to know more, they should probably the easiest thing would be if they just contacted me. I can tell them all about it. Okay, great. Well, I always like to wrap up every session by asking the same question. So I'm going to ask it to you. What is your favorite part about being an economist? This is going to sound like a, a pretty geeky answer. But for me, it's, it's all about applying what we've learned and, and continue to learn because really the state of the art evolves. But the theory, the empirical methodology, you know, statistics – econometrics, applying all of that for, to real-world problems uh, is the best part of it for me. You know, I was a, a tenured associate professor, and teaching was fine, and, and publishing your research in the academic literature was fine. But th- the truth is there's probably three <laughs> other economists that ever read some of those articles I've got, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and here... Yeah. We're looking at real-world stuff where there are vested parties, and they're actually going to read and respond to what we've done. And to me, that's very exciting. Thank you again, Dave, for being here. And if you'd like to learn more about Dave Sharp and Econ One, head to our website at www.econone.com. Thank you for joining us on Inside Expert. Inside Expert.